Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Hilary Allen, Associate Professor of Law at American University. We'll be discussing her recent essay, Experimental Strategies for Regulating Fintech. I'll include a link to the essay in the show notes for today's episode. Hillary, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew. Hillary, your paper is about kind of the intersection of fintech innovation and regulatory innovation. And I wonder if we can maybe set the scene a little bit by discussing what some of the approaches to fintech innovation have been up to this point from a regulatory perspective. You offer three really interesting case studies. Maybe could you tell our listeners what those case studies are, what they teach us about fintech innovation, especially in the situations when there might be overlapping regulators over in innovation? So, you know, a couple of things jump out at me from, from even that first introductory question, which is that there is this scholarship on fintech innovation, and then there is a scholarship on financial regulation, and there isn't necessarily that much bridging the gap between the two. And so the case studies that I look at in this paper sort of show how encouraging fintech innovation can throw up all kinds of changes or challenges for the regulation of these new fintech business models. And the financial regulatory strategies that we've seen so far don't necessarily engage with those new difficulties. So the three case studies that I use in in the essay are marketplace lending, used to be known as peer-to-peer lending until basically the institutional investors took over much of the funding. So it's not really peers lending to peers anymore. It's now uh, institutional firms lending to people seeking typically sort of small-ish, but not entirely insignificant, but small-ish, typically unsecured loans. And what's new from a technical perspective about these is the new credit scoring methods. They're increasingly looking to machine learning, which is a type of artificial intelligence, to sort of scrape the internet for all kinds of new data and process it and decide who to make loans to. And so, yeah, so that's sort of marketplace lending. A point I make with all of these technologies is that even though these are sort of starting out in the fintech fringe, I expect that some form of this technology will migrate into the more established financial sector as we go forward. So I expect that we'll see these new credit scoring methods using this new kind of data and artificial intelligence eventually being utilized to some extent in your standard regulated bank. The Second business model I talk about is robo-advisory. So this is a situation where, again, for sort of efficiency's sake, they're looking to provide financial advice on a wide scale to a lot of people. And the reason why they can make it more cheap and efficient is because instead of having personalized contact between a human financial advisor and a client, you instead have an algorithm that can service many, many clients at the same time. But here again, there's increased interest in machine learning, using artificial intelligence to figure out what the appropriate investment portfolios would be for a particular investor. And then there's automated rebalancing and things like that come as part of the package, depending on the business model. So the thing that sort of 
makes me the most nervous about this business model is something that I call correlation by algorithm. What happens when you have vast numbers of people being advised by the same kind of algorithm on how to invest and when to sell and when to buy? I think we, you know, we can already see that humans have a long history of herd behavior of you know, bubbles and panics. I think this is going to be exacerbated when instead of having sort of a one financial advisor for you know, 20 or 30 clients, we suddenly have an algorithm providing advice to thousands upon thousands of clients. And that same correlation by algorithm effect is also likely to be in effect with the marketplace lending model that I mentioned earlier. The idea that you have so many borrowers sort of being judged on the exact same metrics could also create bubbles that could be problematic. And then the final business model that I talk about is derivative contracts, particularly swaps being represented as smart contracts. And this is something that for those of you who are familiar with the International Swaps and Derivatives Association or ISDA, this is something that they're very excited about. Mm -hmm. So essentially what they're doing is automating the contracts so that the contract is programmed to essentially automatically deduct premiums in the case of a credit default swap from the protection buyer. And then if a credit event occurs, again, for a credit default swap, some information source known as an oracle communicates to this contract that the credit event has occurred and that should automate the payment to the protection buyer. And then along the way, there should be regular check-ins where the algorithm will determine whether collateral needs to be posted by a party to the swap. So the thing that worries me about these smart contracts is precisely their selling point. In fact, the fact that they can execute without any human intervention. Swaps were a flashpoint during the last financial crisis. It would have been a lot worse if they had been automatically programmed to execute. Instead, you know, there was some leeway for forgiving collateral posting obligations, say for AIG, that averted massive failures with ripple effects. I'm concerned that these contracts may not be able to be paused or flexible in the way that the paper swap contracts were before the, the crisis. So these are just three case studies of fintech technologies posing new risks that weren't anticipated the last time we had financial regulatory reform, which was Dodd-Frank in 2010. So these are things that I think need to be contemplated, but they are very underappreciated at the moment. The innovation is not sort of tracking with concerns about financial regulation. In this essay, you talk about some of the objectives and values that are being embraced by regulators when it comes to fintech innovation. What are those values and what values are there that aren't being embraced right now, but probably should? So it's an interesting question because around the world, different regulators have different mandates, if you will, different regulatory goals that have been established for them by statute or some other public policy making. So there's no sort of one uniform response to what should regulators be considering. One summary of the different regulatory objectives around the world that I like says that, you know, around the world, you're going to find financial regulators that are charged with protecting the stability of the financial system, that are charged with protecting consumers, that are charged with protecting investors, that are charged with promoting competition, that are charged with increasing efficiency, 
And then finally, that are charged with dealing with financial crime. So those are all objectives that regulatory agencies can have. And to complicate things further, most of them have more than one and that they can potentially conflict. And so I think what we can see in terms of how these agencies are dealing with fintech is at least so far, the priorities have been the regulatory objectives of competition and efficiency. So we're seeing all kinds of measures being adopted by regulatory agencies to promote fintech innovation by the private sector. And I think these sort of at best gel with the competition and efficiency mandates that these agencies have. Very few agencies actually have any kind of mandate to promote innovation. That's not usually part of the DNA of a financial regulatory agency. And yet we see financial regulators around the world really pushing innovation. I think that's perhaps been done somewhat uncritically to the extent that it has been done with sort of critical thought about how it ties to the objectives of the agency. I think it's being tied to the competition and efficiency objectives. But coming out of the last financial crisis, I think there's a general consensus that the most important financial regulatory objective was financial stability. And we also have a long history of consumer and investor abuses that were the genesis of some of our regulatory agencies like the SEC and the CFPB. And so I think it's very important that financial stability and consumer investor protection not get lost in this shuffle of promoting innovation, which can serve, as I said, the competition and efficiency perspectives, but rarely directly advances the goals of financial stability, consumer protection, or investor protection. You propose something called subtech, and I I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, or subtech, It's a camel case term, S-U-P, and then capital T-E-C-H. As a way regulators can approach the regulation of innovation from an internal perspective, what is subtech and how is it different from maybe the more common term or concept of regtech? So I also use the terms or pronounce it subtech. I have been... I've been chastised by some who prefer the term to be pronounced soup tech. So I say, pick your poison. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so sub tech is a term that's been gaining currency really only the last couple of years. A term that people tend to be more familiar with is reg tech, which is sort of the use of new technologies in furtherance of regulatory goals. But the reason why I don't like the term reg tech is that it describes to potentially very different things, and it's therefore potentially confusing term. So RegTech can describe technological innovation by regulators, which is what I refer to as, as subtech. But it can also describe, and frankly, is more often used to describe the use of technologies by private sector firms in order to comply with regulation. So... I don't want to be talking in this paper about what the private sector is doing in order to streamline and improve their regulatory compliance. That's a different issue. I'm focused instead on innovation with technology by the regulators themselves in furtherance of their regulatory goals. And that's why I prefer the term subtech, really focuses on their supervisory function. What have regulators been doing with subtech thus far? And what do you propose that they should be doing? Are there any risks or barriers that we need to be mindful of in that process? 
So the answer is really not much yet. So really, uh, most of the information that I've been able to gather on what is happening in terms of subtech comes from some studies conducted by the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS, who surveyed regulatory agencies around the world to find out what they were doing in terms of their own technological innovation. And it's really only been in the last year that there's been significant interest in subtech innovation around the world. So there really hasn't been a lot yet. What the BIS has found is that where there has been subtech innovation, it's been focused on reporting requirements and then detecting fraud and then linked to the regulatory objective of preventing financial crime. There's been a lot of interest in using subtech to automate the sort of know your client aspects of anti-money laundering law. So that's where we've seen a lot of subtech innovation. In the essay, I sort of refer to that as automating existing functions that are already there. The regulators are already performing. But what we haven't seen much of is the automation of the existing prudential function. There's been very little experimentation with using subtech strategies to improve oversight of institutions to determine whether they are managing their credit and liquidity risks well. A little bit of experimentation with using uh, subtech strategies to improve stress testing, but, but not much. And then what I think is also missing and very important is a response to the new risks that fintech is creating. So in response to your earlier question, I talked about the lack of flexibility associated with smart contracts. I talked about the consequences of exacerbating bubbles and panics when you have all decisions being made by a few financial algorithms. These are... I think, challenges to financial and regulation that are they're different in kind to what we've seen in the past. And I think they're going to require different kinds of regulatory responses that, in fact, engage with the regulatory technologies themselves. For example, circuit breakers for smart contracts, data sets for machine learning algorithms that expose those machine learning algorithms to the possibility of worst case scenarios and tail events. These are new technological responses that are needed, and we haven't seen any subtech or subtech potato potato <laughs> experimentation on those types of regulatory solutions today. And I think that is a problem. Hillary, these are some observations about what regulators ought to be doing with subtech or, or subtech. What are we, in fact, observing that they're doing? Where, where are they putting their resources when it comes to fintech innovation? As I mentioned, you know, the, the focus really seems to be to promote innovation in line with competition and efficiency mandates. And so we're seeing an enormous amount of resources poured into programs that are designed to encourage private sector innovation. And I don't think that that's necessarily the best use of those resources. The private sector does many things well but it doesn't you know, protect consumers and investors all the time. And it, the one thing it's really bad at doing is financial stability regulation. No individual market participant really has any incentive to maintain the stability of the financial system as a whole because they can't appropriate that to themselves. And even if they were unusually altruistic, 
they don't have the power to or the information to coordinate actions on behalf of the entire financial industry in order to promote financial stability. So consumer and investor protection and financial stability regulation really have to come from the regulators themselves. And so I would like to see more resources being dedicated to subtech experimentation that further those goals rather than pouring resources into things like regulatory sandboxes and innovation hubs, which you know are, are useful, but they're very resource intensive and they exist only to promote private sector innovation. Hillary, what key takeaways or open questions would you like our listeners to take from this conversation or to be thinking about or uh, open questions that you might be writing about in the future? Uh, so I guess a couple of takeaways. First of all, I would like you know many of our listeners to start to worry about what is happening in terms of fintech, in terms of new risks being created. Uh, in, in other research that I've done, I've, I've talked about this concept of driverless finance and noted the disparity between driverless cars where you know, these cars aren't going to be allowed out on the road until they're proved almost you know, perfectly safe. Whereas we have no such oversight preventing the development of financial technologies that could tank the entire economy, the you know, resulting harm to people's livelihoods, et cetera. So I'm trying to sort of encourage people to, to think more clearly and carefully about the risks of these technologies. In terms of takeaways for any regulators or public policymakers out there, while I've talked about the importance of subtech innovation, I haven't really had a chance to talk about the difficulties associated with it. Regulating any new technology is a challenge and trying to regulate new technologies with technologies themselves is going to be very challenging and something that's very new for financial regulators. So I think it's important for financial regulators to start thinking about, well, what resources would they need in order to really properly experiment with subtech? What kinds of expertise do they need to hire? How is the best way to deal with the fact that this type of expertise is going to be rare and expensive? Could it be shared amongst financial regulatory agencies? Another question that I think regulators are going to need to grapple with is, the need to be a little humble about their technological solutions. All of this is trial and error for the fintech industry as well as for regulators. And so there's going to be sort of an expectation that some of this won't go as planned. What are the responses to that in terms of adjusting the technology, but also sort of managing the reputational risks? So this is by no means easy, what I'm encouraging. But I do think it's really important because if Subtech doesn't get up and running soon while these new uh, fintech technologies are in their infancy and are sort of more susceptible to development. The regulators are going to find themselves in a position where they can't really influence these technologies at all, notwithstanding that, as I've already discussed, these technologies could potentially have a significant impact on their core mandates of financial stability, investor protection, and consumer protection. Our guest today has been Hillary Allen. Associate Professor of Law at American University. We've discussed her new essay, Experimental Strategies for Regulating Fintech. I'll include a link to the essay in the show notes for today's episode. Hillary, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.